I am not preaching in a mask. So if anybody thought that's what was happening today, you are free to stream live from the car. It's good to see so many, so few of you. I knew we were having church today as soon as I saw Cleveland walk in. When Cleveland came in, I said, the Lord is with us today. <laughs> good to see you, man. I didn't realize how much I missed you, bro. Oh, man, good to see you, Cleve. Man, who you telling? Good to see everybody. All right, we are going to, two weeks ago, I did a message called um, it was Stay Balanced Part 3, if you will, and it was on 2 Kings 22. It was trying to figure out how do we move and get out of this sort of theopolitical gospel culture that we're in that's so infused with race and politics that it is really causing a lot of damage. And we went to Josiah and we read the account. We looked at some of the history leading up to Josiah. And we read a couple of verses. I want to reread those verses today because we're going to return back to this particular passage in 2 Kings 22. Because I believe in, in this passage, there is a way out of thinking about all of these things, of, of recapturing a biblical gospel for those of us who are believers and, and rejecting everything seen through the political, ethnic lens that we find ourselves in currently. Now, in 2 Kings, I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'll just summarize part of it. We're only going to look at verses 11 through 13 again, and then we're going to bounce around to quite a few other places. But in this particular passage, what you see is Josiah is a king. He's a good king. He's the great, he's the great grandson of Hezekiah. And he is given the kingship at age eight. When he turns 26, he has done good work for the Lord. He's rebuilding the temple. And they find the book of Deuteronomy as they're rebuilding the temple. And apparently this, the word of God had been missing for so long that no one even thought about it. So when they found the book and, and the secretary, Shaphan, read it, he went to the king and to Josiah and read Deuteronomy, the whole book, and we find in verse 11, this was his response after hearing the book of Deuteronomy read. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, the court secretary Shaphan, and the king's servant Asiah, Go and inquire of the Lord for me, the people, and all Judah about the words in this book that have been found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us, because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book in order to do everything written about us. This is a profound reality, because what? Josiah realizes is it's not so much his own personal culpability, but he recognizes that he and the people currently have inherited sinful, 
a sinful culture that now God is going to judge him for. And we know from the passage in 2 Kings 22, the early chapters, beginning in verse 1 and 2, it describes Josiah as a good king. So Josiah can't even say, I am implicit in what I've inherited, yet he understands, biblically speaking, that what his culture is into at the very moment is an inheritance of sinfulness for generations that now he and all of Judah are going to be judged for. This is a different reality. I've said for us that we could take what he says here and blueprint it to our culture because it eliminates the necessity for renouncing white privilege. Or, or it eliminates the, the necessity of being a social justice warrior, but it, what it says is as a believer, I have inherited a tradition as an American in this country, as a Christian, I've inherited some things that my ancestors did, and now I am the result of living in a culture that is the consequences. This is the, the reality of what we live in. Five things happened in this scene, four particularly. The first was he grieved. He tore his clothes. I'm not doing that today. I need a little bit of clothes I got, and it would traumatize all of you if I did. He grieved. Then he asked the prophets, the priests, to inquire of the Lord. In other words, go pray to the Lord. Because he recognized that they were under God's judgment. He said, God is angry. And he said, he's angry at us because what? Because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this book. He recognized, man, we're in bad shape. Because the people who were supposed to teach us how to obey God did not. And now we're responsible. Not culpable. Not it's our fault. It's our sin necessarily. But we've inherited the disobedience and the judgment from our ancestors. And then he makes a covenant. Now last week I went through, two weeks ago, Mike did a wonderful job leading us last week on why I don't like to glorify God. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you haven't, because I think it speaks directly to the heart of our culture and probably some in our church. But he says, in the process I, I laid out, we talked about grieving. We talked about inquiry. I briefly mentioned judgment, and we spent a lot of our time on inheritance. What does that mean? If you're white, you've inherited a gospel that has done this. If you're black, if you're Hispanic, Asian, whoever you are, if you're a Christian, in America, there is an American church tradition that we have inherited. And so much of the division that we see happening today did not happen four years ago at the change of a president. It's been a steady, progressive reality that is now coming to pass. Or as some people like to say, the chickens have come home to roost. So what I want to do today is, because I breezed over this two weeks ago, I want to make a biblical case for why I believe that we're experiencing judgment from the Lord. I want to do that this morning. 
Because I think a lot of people, there's a lot of people who would say that God is judging our nation right now. And it's, and it's an internal sense, it's a, a gut feeling, but I, I want to make a biblical case for why I think the Lord is judging. What we're experiencing right now is, is not the left or the right or Trump or, or Biden, but it's the Lord. Now, to, to process God's judgment, one underlining reality of his judgment is a belief in his sovereignty. We have to have a belief in the sovereignty of God, meaning the ultimate and utter control of God over all events. If you don't have a belief in God's sovereignty, then this message will not be helpful for you. Because in order for us as believers to process the reality of God's sovereignty, his control over all the events, that's just Bible. That's just, that's foundation. That's not even theological framework. That's just what God said. You don't even have to understand theology to, to say this is what God says about himself. If he's not in control of everything, then we're doomed. So we process this by believing, okay, God, you are sovereign. You're in control. You said the gates of hell will not prevail over your church. Now, America's not the church. There are other believers everywhere. So if something happens to the church here, there are believers elsewhere in the world. But I don't believe that God established a church here to decimate it. But I think he intends to discipline it. So with the belief of God's sovereignty and understanding that, this actually is what has puzzled me the most. As many of you know, the Lord has given me somewhat of a, of a platform, a little bit more than just being a pastor here at Solid Rock. And so as I've talked to different leaders across the country and had different Zoom meetings and talking to churches about what do we do with racial reconciliation and, and do we renounce right, all the stuff that's been happening, one thing that has puzzled me among believers, particularly theologians that I know and respect, who some of us do, they are champions of the sovereignty of God, but they seem to do so selectively. It's, it's, it's puzzling to me that there's a selective sovereignty of God. So an example, you see, God was sovereign over racism and slavery and all of that. 100% true. Even if you don't like his sovereignty, he still does it, still is. 100% true. But why is God not sovereign over the liberal left then? Over the issues that are happening today in the media? Over who our president is? Why is he not sovereign? Why is it now this, this political party or that party and these people and that people? And why isn't God allowing this to happen for a reason for us to discern what his will is? You see, an understanding and a belief truly in God's sovereignty will make us ask questions like, okay, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? What are you trying to show us? We know your word. You discipline those you love as sons. So if it's getting increasingly difficult for us as believers, what are you trying to show us? Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? Questions like, okay, why are these particular narratives the main narrative right now? It wasn't this way 50 years ago or 20 years ago. 
What are you trying to show us through this? Instead, what we get is people, believers. When I say believers, when I say people, I'm not really talking about non-Christians. What we get is believers so theoretically caught up that everything is an agenda of the opposing political party. Where is God in your evaluation of culture, my brother and sister? Is he not sovereign over these people, or is he only sovereign when it works in our favor? What I intend to share this morning is not, is just my, it's my question, asking God these questions. What are you trying to show us for years, over and over, praying and seeking and reading, talking with others? What I intend to share this morning is just my observations based on that. And I want to use the Bible. Now, I said I want to make a biblical case. Let me say this, what I mean by that. Let me explain what I mean by biblical. I don't mean I'm going to point to one verse and in context, it's going to describe what's happening in our culture. That's not always how you make a biblical case. What I mean by a biblical case is an understanding of how God works in his word. Okay, how does God do things in the word? You got to start there. Because we got to be honest, there's a lot of things that just don't one-to-one our culture. They just don't one-to-one. So I can't point to this and do that. And we do a lot of things based on what we think. You can't find a passage that says, homeschool your children, <laughs> Christian education. But the people will say, oh, no, but you got to train your child up in the way it should go. Okay, that's an application. You can't find a verse that says vote. But you find a verse that says pray for your leaders. So it's not wrong to do that, but I'm just saying you can't make a biblical case often one-to-one. So I'm not going to be able to find a passage and then explain everything that I think is happening from four or five verses. We're going to look at a number of verses. Now, I don't like to always do that because in honesty, you got to take the Bible out of context on some level. But I don't think that's actually necessarily wrong if you're trying to make a point. Sometimes what we call systematic theology is doing that, where it just gives you a bunch of verses that highlight a particular theme. And it doesn't have to be in context, it just has to be what the Bible says. What I mean by biblical is that there is a confidence that the scripture still applies to us today. So passages like 2 Timothy 3, for, 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 the, for, the, for the God's word is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, training, and rebuking in righteousness. Or Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope and endurance through the encouragement from the scriptures. So I believe that God's word is still applies to us today in 21st century America as believers, even though it was written millennia ago, multiple millennia ago. What I mean by biblical is the, the applying the call to discern what the will of the Lord is in, in verses like Romans 21. What I mean by being biblical is looking at the number of verses that seem to match what is happening in our cultural moment. So what I'm asking everyone to do is for a moment to step back from our patriotism, our political affiliation, our ethnic identities, even our understanding of constitutional equity. And let's just step back and as believers for a second. Let's just evaluate everything as believers, not believers who vote for this or think this way or 
Let's just evaluate as believers and look at the Bible, look at our culture and think, hmm, I wonder if this is what's happening. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying that you have to think the way I do. I just want you to know why I think the way I think based on Scripture. Now, there's one thing that we have to remember when we talk about God's judgment. And it's this action is greater than time. So if you're taking notes, put action, then the greater than sign. Remember the big alligator? <laughs> action is greater than time. And let me explain what I mean by that. On quite a few occasions in the Bible, the pronouncement of judgment does not come right away. It doesn't. Case in point, Genesis 2.17. Here's what the Lord said to Adam. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, when me and you hear that, we think, bite the fruit. When the sun goes down, I'm dead. That's what you think. On the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Genesis 5.5 tells us this. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. So either that's the longest day in recorded history, or God's pronouncement of judgment is not always immediate. Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Thousands of years later, Jesus would say this in John 12, verse 31. Now the judgment of this world, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So here you got God making this statement to the serpent. And for the rest of the Bible is answering the question, who is the seed that this woman's going to have that's going to crush his head. The whole Bible is a progressive revelation until Jesus says, it's me. God, in, in, in one of the greatest and what we call the Abrahamic covenant, where Abraham, we're, we're sons and daughters of Abraham, if we believe by faith, this is what the Bible teaches us, that we have the faith of Abraham because Abraham believed it because God said it, even though he didn't see it. That's biblical faith. I believe it because God said it, even though I can't see it. In Genesis 15, beginning in verse 12, listen to what God says was going to happen. He says this. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. And the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years on a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out with many possessions. So here God is telling Abraham, I'm going to let them experience suffering. And I'm not going to wait till 400 years. So I'm not judging them right away. Then he says this in verse 15. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, 
talking about the Israelites, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So here God is saying, I'm going to judge them, but not initially. 400 years later. Now imagine if you were within the first 50 or 60 years of being enslaved by Egypt. The last thing you're thinking of is like, this is never going to end. Where is the God of our fathers? Now imagine if you were in the last five years of that and you all of a sudden see the plagues happen and you're like, man, why is it dark everywhere but around our neighborhood? It's blood in the water, but mine tastes fine. In Exodus 17, there's a popular scene. Here's what happens. God tells Israel to destroy the Amalekites. Here's what happened in Exodus 17. This is right after they come in to the land of Canaan. After they've left Egypt, here's what God says. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, but whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. His biceps were probably incredible. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Now, many theologians and historians believe that the Exodus happened around 1446 B.C. So somewhere around between 1446 and you know, maybe a year or two, however long, God said, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek. First Chronicles 4, 41 through 33 says this. These were recorded by name, came in the days of King Hezekiah of Judah, attacked the Hamites, tents, and the Munites who were found there and set them apart for destruction as they are today. Then they settled in their place because there was pasture for their flocks. Now 500 men from these sons of Simeon went to Palladia, Neriah, Rephiah, and Uziel, the descendants of Ishi, and their leaders to Mount Seir. They struck down the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped, and they still live there today. So they killed the last of the Amalekites. Hezekiah was king somewhere in the 700s. So almost six to seven hundred years later did God wipe out the Amalekites. The reason why this is important to start when we're looking at judgment is because we tend to think, we tend to think in terms of how long ago things were. We are people who God has restricted to a space and time continuum. So when we think about, we think in terms of minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, and years. And so something that happened 20 years ago was a long time to us. Sometimes we can't even remember things that happened 25, 30 years if you're that old. The reason why this is important is because God doesn't think like that. God doesn't think that happened a long time ago. God thinks like that happened. And there's a difference. 
He thinks like, no, that happened. And they're going to see me as a result of it. Romans 12, 19 through 21. He just says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. We get to Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And it's the great judgment seat. Well, God says he will open up the books and look at what everybody's done. That's all of human history. So God is patient with his judgment. Time is irrelevant to God as it relates to judgment. Having said that, let me make a brief biblical case for why I think what we are experiencing right now is actually judgment. And it's inherited. It's inherited. I don't think God decided this today. Like, you know what, I'm going to judge America. Or decided it four years ago. Well, I'm going to judge America. I think there's been a progressive revelation, a progressive patience, and now things are starting to unravel in our nation. The first passage I want to look at comes out of Romans chapter 2. This is obviously Paul talking directly to the Jews, but I think this applies to our culture, one verse in particular. But beginning in verse 19, this is what Paul says to the church in Rome. He says this, And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the arrogant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Verse 24, here's a verse I think that summarizes how people see the church. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If you look at our culture and the church and how the church is perceived, and this isn't just unbelievers rejecting the gospel, it's unbelievers evaluating the fruit of believers. The name of God, of Jesus, the faith in him has been blasphemed, is being blasphemed because of the legacy. Matthew 5, 13 says this, you are salt of the earth, but if that salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? How can it again be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I want to read you a brief commentary on this, that I, on that verse that I thought was brilliant. It says this, salt has many uses, but in the Old Testament, it is most often a purifying agent. As the salt of the earth, Jesus' disciples are to purify a corrupt world through their example of righteous living and their proclamation of the gospel. However, contaminated salt does not promote purity. The verb translated lose its taste indicates foolish and immoral behavior. It refers to a professing disciple whose unrighteous lifestyle promotes destruction rather than purification. Such salt is only good for spreading over ground when you want to kill vegetation. Such is the fatal effect of an unrighteous disciple's lifestyle. Nothing grows where they go. The verb thrown out describes a disposal of something worthless. And the verb trampled alludes to the treatment an immoral disciple receives from the world. 
if I look at the landscape of our culture, our country, our society, and I look at the landscape of the church, what it's allowed for historically, it's current division, political division. It is hard for me not to think, man, this looks like it's happening right now. Let me be specific as to what I mean. I think our, the church allowed for political idealism versus a biblical realism. This is what we've inherited. So you have a culture, a country that's founded on Christ. I mean, you get the early theologians like Increase Mathers and John Cotton and Cotton Mathers, and you get these people who are theologians who preach good doctrine. It's founded on Christ, but you ignore the very foundation of that, which is image bearers, the Imago Dei, people made in the image of God. It's not just believers made in the image of God. It's all people. This is why the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, not just your brother, because people are made in the image of God. So you found a society on Jesus Christ who became a human being, demonstrating more than anything else that people are made in God's image. And he saved everyone. Yeah, he, was, he came from the Jews, but he said, I'm coming for everyone, including the Jews. That foundation is lost. The church used the gospel that takes away the chains of sin, that tells us we are free in him, as a weapon to train people and told them that in the name of him, they need to be in chains. This is what we've inherited. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. But we've inherited it. And people judge you based on who you are, how you look, and what you believe by this history. We allowed for a theological gospel where all of a sudden politics is sort of, we said separation of church and state, but in reality, we just, we're following the political landscape. To be specific, the hypocritical specificity is in this, a failure to repent. It's a failure to repent. Jesus said this in John 15, 22 through 24. I'm only going to read a portion of verse 24. He said this, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. So Jesus is saying, look, the fact that I've come and people reject that, they're guilty of sin. Now imagine being the people who say we come in the name of him and participate in that sin. There was a failure to repent. Benjamin Lay, a Christian minister from 1737, wrote this post to his fellow believers who were in the context of slavery promotion. He says, it's all slave keepers that keep the innocent in bondage apostates. 
pretending to lay claim to the pure and holy Christian religion of what congregation forever, but especially in their ministers, by whole example, the filthy leprosy and apostasy is spread far and near. It is a notorious sin which many of the true friends of Christ and his pure truth, called Quakers, has been for many years, and still are concerned to write and bear testimony against. So he's talking about slavery, like how you... How do you profess to be a Christian and do this? And he's a brother. He's a believer. As a practice to gross and hurtful religion and destructive to government beyond what words can let forth or can be declared of by men and angels and yet lived by the ministers and magistrates in America. In other words, it's so wicked, this would never be declared by men and angels, but yet it's lived by you all who profess to be believers. This was written in Benjamin Lay, Philadelphia, 1737. 1783, anti-slavery petition to Congress. This is one of the main things that they said. We have long beheld with sorrow the complicated evils produced by an unrighteous commerce, an unrighteous commerce, that's an important phrase, which subjects many thousands of the human species to the deplorable state of slavery. 1783 anti-slavery petition. Josiah Wedgwood, 1787, painted a picture, drew a picture of a man in chains, slave in chains, and he wrote this. He said, striving mightily against those who did not believe Africans carried the full image of God, Christian artists entered the fray into, into, went, entered the fray early to fight for human, universal human dignity. And he has this in quote with an African slave like this, am I not a man and not a brother? William Wilberforce in his speech to Parliament on social guilt in 1791 said this, never, never will we detest till we have wiped away this scandal from the Christian name released ourselves from the load of guilt under which we at present labor and extinguished every trace of this bloody traffic. Abraham Booth in 1792 said this in his book, The Inimical to the Laws of Moses and the Gospel of Christ. He says this, Nor ought we to pray merely that God would abolish the infamous commerce in man. So they're making a connection to it's a money thing the infamous commerce in man on the shores of Africa, but also for the gradual emancipation of oppressed Negroes in the West Indian islands, that the slavery of innocent persons may cease to exist and sink under the, detestable, the detestation of all Europe. For what must the enslaved Africans in those islands think of Christians, of Christianity, and of Christ under the tuition of their oppressors? I could read more. I could read more. There is a hypocrisy and a failure to repent. It wasn't that all the church was this way, but those who called the church out, it fell on deaf ears based upon their language because of infamous or unrighteous commerce, which I would agree. The other specific concern that I see hypocritical was a failure to love your neighbor and to fight for the poor. 
Proverbs 21, 13 says, the one who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will himself also call out and not be answered. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17 says, wash yourselves, clean yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Oh, the church created widows and created the fatherless through wicked sin that really, I think, proved that mammon was loved more than the Messiah. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, since either he will take one, he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, people don't realize slavery wasn't about black and white. Slavery was about the color green. It was economic. And you see this transpire. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. There's no one white in our church that did it and should somehow be, look at what, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing here. I'm highlighting why I think God is judging, partly why. This isn't the only reason why. We've inherited this. We've inherited this. If you're white, I know you didn't own any slaves. But if you're a Christian, you inherited this because Christians allow for it. If you're black, sure, we understand. We've inherited things. Whoever you are, if you are a Christian in America, you've inherited a legacy, just like Josiah said, of your ancestors, our Christian ancestors, failed to obey God. And we find ourselves in this divisive, angry culture today. Theolitical. So how are we being judged? What specifically do I think is happening? Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says this, the Lord passed in front of him, he's talking about Moses, spoiler alert, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, verse 7, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That's a powerful sentence. Now we think, no, what about individual sin? God, absolutely, that's true. But he said to the guilty. The guilty aren't people who profess to believe in Jesus. The guilty are people who profess to believe in Jesus and then don't obey him. You can't just say, oh, because I write theology, I believe in Jesus. Jesus said a couple of times in the, in, the, in the Gospels, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Why do I think this is a judgment? Let me tell you one reason why. It's one reason why. If you've been the dear God, you'll, you've heard this. One of the biggest points of contention when discussing race 
particularly between black and white people. Whenever we talk about race, it's usually black and white, right? In America, at least. Even though there's tons of other ethnicities, they got other issues that they got to work through. It ain't like Koreans and Chinese are buddying up. There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's, there's even in the Latino community. But we just, we, we highlight black and white. Like, that's the, that's, the, that's the main narrative of our country. So whenever that comes up, it's going to be a big deal. One of the biggest points of contention when discussing race, particularly those who are evaluating black people's claims of stuff like systemic racism or racial or financial inequality, disparities within in, in education and finance. One of the things people say, well, no, 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 the biggest, there's many factors that factor into that, which I would 100% agree. But they'll say this, we, the main problem in the black community is fatherlessness in the home. So they'll say fatherlessness in the home. That's the problem. That's why you guys, that's why black people, and it's only you guys, the people who are not black say this, many people black say this. And to some degree, I would agree. I think a father in the home is God's ideal. I think that's, I'm, and I'll be honest, I'm, I didn't have a dad growing up, but my mom, she did a great job, and I'm grateful for her. But I'm glad I'm a dad, though. I wiped every one of those boys' butts. <laughs> I was there. I've been with them boys. I hug them and kiss them every day. I agree that having a father in the home would make a difference. But when people say that, they use it as a weapon against the black community. In other words, they say, hush up for what you're talking about because you don't have fathers in the home. Okay, let's take that logic and apply it. If that's a true logic, then what do you say about all of the people who had fathers in the home and committed crimes against humanity for hundreds of years? So those fathers pass down their sins to their children, sometimes allowing them to take over the slave plantations, teaching their children how to be racist. So if fathers in the home is the key, is the big deal, then what does that say about all the people who had fathers in the home and did way more wicked sins? Crimes against humanity with fathers in the home. It's more complicated than that. What you see is fathers, God allowing fathers who are guilty, even if they profess to be believers, some of them teaching their kids this evil, and they're just going and going and going and going. So when slavery stops, now Jim Crow happens. When this happens, then this happens, and it keeps going and going and going. Now, I'm only using slavery and racism as the main tool, because that's the main conversation. There's a lot of things we could talk about, a lot of things we could talk about. How else are we being judged? Romans 1, 28 through 32. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they did not do what was right. So God removes that grace and allows people to sin in ways that their hearts desire. They are filled with, listen to the descriptions. This is after the portion of homosexuality. Everyone always thinks Romans 1 is talking about that. Listen to all the stuff he says apart from that. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. I mean, you, you, you know it's evil when you invent something. Disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, listen to that, they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. So here you have a culture that's founded on Christ where people know that these things are evil, and yet you encourage others to do them. 
if you look at culture, like culture, just to, so it's funny because there's always levels to stuff, right? Even, even gangsters have a code, right? Even the, there's some things that even gangsters won't do, right? There's a code. Even with all of the race and all of the stuff like that, America still had to some degree a moral code. There was a time when like in the 50s, the nuclear family, and you were sort of like, I mean, the thought of committing adultery was like, you're a homewrecker. You know, it was just terrible. Like, it was a, one of the worst things you could do for a woman in particular to be caught having sex with another man's husband. You're a homewrecker. I mean, it was just a thing to do. Remember a few years ago when Tiger Woods got exposed for committing adultery on his wife? And you had people lined up, hiring lawyers, trying to get book deals to say, oh, I had sex with him too. No shame at all. There was a point where you used to be ashamed of some of the evil you did, so you tried to hide it. And now in the culture we're in, man, people find others who are like them and they celebrate it. It's a fascinating, even in the morality that America used to have, has degraded over time. It's just like, wow, what happened? This stuff used to be, I remember, I remember, I remember, I remember back in the day, there was a show called Moonlighting I used to watch. And it was Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd, And I was too young to watch it, but I still watched it. And I remembered they were making a big deal because he was going to say the word that you use when you say donkey, right? The other word, the A word. He was going to say that on national television. He was going to say the word ass. <laughs> and, he, and, and he said it, and it was this big deal, all these interviews. Whoa, what did it feel like to say that on national television? <laughs> you know why people in the room are laughing? Because we're so far past that now. That's not even, we're way beyond that. Me and my wife, we watch shows that are supposed to be for kids, and my wife would be like, <laughs> she'll be cringing. We'll be sitting there chilling, all of a sudden they'll just say something crazy. Like, what? It's supposed to be for kids. These shows that are supposed to be teaching, to letting my kids understand how to be a kid, they talking about falling in love and dating. These kids are elementary school. At least you have, at least have some dignity. You'd be saved by the bell and 90210. At least you had to be in high school and college. Now it's like, man, you in elementary school. There's movies about having crushes, and it's like, golly. I just want my son to just, I still, I don't mind if they think girls are, are weird. My son's 12, 11, and 8. But you see the culture just changing. It's changed. And it hasn't stopped changing. We're moving in a direction that's further and further worse from even the idealism that America had for itself. Now, you didn't do all of this. You didn't do all but we've inherited this. I'm not trying to shame anyone. Don't feel ashamed. I'm just trying to help you be enlightened. This is the culture that we live in. This is a culture God has sovereignly called us to live in and to make a difference. Man, I got, there's much more I could say about the specificity of judgment. But there are two more things I need to say at least. There's a lot to say. Some of these will be brought up tonight in Dear God. This is probably the most important talk I'll give for Dear God because it will highlight some consequences that I just can't put in a sermon here, but we'll be able to talk about freely tonight. So if you're interested, please, please be ready at 6 p.m. and we'll talk through some of these things. And then in two weeks on the 26th, we'll talk about the way out. Like how do we, 
how do we get how do we deal with this? But this is another reason why I think God is judging. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. Verse 2. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Let me tell you how I see this playing out. And again, this isn't to shame anybody. I'm just trying to say it's a it's because I'm a, a, a believer who believes in God's sovereignty, a lot of this stuff sometimes is just sociologically fascinating to me. It's just like, wow, this is crazy right now, how this changed. All right, so when we, go, when we think of the civil rights, right, civil rights was not about necessarily whiteness as much. That was, it was about changing legislation, right? Sure, those things existed, and it was the white versus black struggle and black, white people in positions of power governmentally, and we need to change laws. That was, that was what the Martin Luther King and people were about. There, there was really, it was always about blackness being on trial, blackness, and to some degree, that's still this. Black people are prone to violence and criminality. There's still these things about black people, and people pull out these stats, and when you really look at some of the numbers, it's actually not true. And I talked about some of those even two weeks ago, and you'll hear more tonight. But there was a sense of, like, it was about, civil rights was about, you know, getting laws changed and, and equality. It was about, you know, equity, fairness, and equality. Trying to, black people feel like, hey, listen, you need to, treat us right, like we've, we've seen you treat other people right, like we need to right this wrongs and so all these things happen, laws get passed and so forth. But it was never really about being white. But then you look at today. It's fascinating to me that today what's on trial is like white privilege, white fragility, white guilt, white supremacy. Like it's always been about stuff black people do, but now all of a sudden everyone's angry about what white people do, even white people. It's, it's fascinating to me. And I'm not saying this to, if you're, I'm not saying this is just the reality. You, you know this, or you've inherited it. I got friends of mine who are pastors who are talking about, man, I just got to repent of being a racist. I said, man, I'll punch you in your mouth if I, you ain't no racist, man. Stop saying that, man. You ain't no racist. Man, I, man you, better, you better be glad this quarantine, because if I was with you, I'd bow you. Man, what you talking about? You ain't no racist. Don't listen to that lie. Like, you, that ain't you. That's some people, but that ain't you. You don't got to own that if you don't own it now. Nah, but what you've inherited, though, what you've inherited is people think you're racist because you're white. You've inherited that. But if you haven't done it, don't claim that. If anybody comes in here that's white and kneels, it better be because your back or knee hurts. We ain't doing that. No, sir. But, the fa- but it's just interesting that God is allowing that to be on display. Why is God not sovereign over that being an emphasis? Why is that the political left, but the people who own slaves were just people of their day? Yeah. See, that's where we see, mm, that's selective sovereignty. If God is sovereign over all of that, then he's sovereign over you getting some pushback on your timeline. Back in the day, pushback used to be literal. Now people get a couple of posts on their timeline, they offended. Yeah. I'm tired of seeing this on my timeline. Well, then log off. But the judgment that I think has hit the church that is the most concerning to me, out of everything I said, that's not what's the most concerning. The judgment that's the most concerning in these two passages I'm going to read. And it's not being able to see the real enemy. 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15, God says this, but I will continue to do what I am doing in order, this is Paul writing on behalf of God, but I will continue to do what I am doing in order to deny an opportunity to those who want to be regarded as our equals in what they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, 
So it is no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. I said this before and I'll say this again. I said this. I said, we've been talking about, I've been talking about judgment on America since the Revelation series. Even before that, this is not a new theme. This is only compounded because of the culture that we're in. And because I'm going on sabbatical, so if people get mad, they'll forget about it in August when I come back in September. I've been talking about this for a while. But we're forgetting that the enemy is at work and he's an angel of light. So we'll support movements, political ideologies that seem like they're doing all this stuff. And some of it may be right. This, uh, listen, I support the restraining of evil in any capacity. But I don't put my ultimate trust in it. I watch a lot of the debates and I get into a lot of conversations with academics who talk about this stuff, political stuff. And I was watching this great, one of the best debates I've seen between Candace Owens and Hawk Nelson, who is the New York chapter of the Black Lives Matter. I was really impressed with both. I thought that was a good interview. It was the first time. Well, anyway, I liked it. It was really good. And I realized as I was watching them go back and forth, I realized it's funny because people will say that one side doesn't do anything for black people. That you're, that's a lie. The Democrats are lying. They don't do anything for black people. But the Republicans don't really either. And then you realize it because well, as a politician, they, they, the color they care the most about is green. Your constituency, we talk about your constituency. It's people who put you in, who give you money and make sure that you're in there. You'll say whatever you want to get that office. And I see people putting their hope in that. You see movements happening where there's the appearance of reconciliation, but there's no cross. Companies are responding to these things, but it's just subscription. It's capitalistic subscription. It's, it's we need to make money. It is, not it is not economically viable right now to be an outward opponent of anybody's race or sexuality or whatever expression they have. It's just unwise. You got reconciliation with no cross on one side, and you got the other side that seems like they crossed out reconciliation. And it's just this fascinating dilemma that we're just in, and we just inherited this. Ephesians 6, 12, 13, 12, and 13, 12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. That's the enemy. He said, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. And I think we've, we've so theoretical, we're blinded to that. So everything, I'm listening to some of us in the church, you're blinded by this. I got friends who are like, man, I lost friends because of this. I've lost friends because I said I voted for, I wore a MAGA hat, or I said this, or I did that. I lost friends because I put Black Lives Matter on my wall. Among believers, like really? So the enemy now is that per the political ideology? That's a theological gospel. Is that please God? What fruit of the spirit is that? We've forgotten who the real enemy is. God is, is allowing us to be blinded by cultural philosophies 
and we're judging other people for being too cultural. And then we use the cultural term to judge them. It's, 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 it's anthropologically amazing when you step back and watch it. If you think, wow, Lord, you're really, you really, there are times I'm just like, wow, Lord, you're really doing your thing right now. You're really letting this stuff just go. I said that to the Lord. I was talking to him this morning, like, wow, Lord, this is crazy. You're just letting things just. <laughs> I know he's in control. I'm not worried about it. My faith isn't tinted at all. But I'm just like, wow, Lord, you're letting people go hard right now. This is kind of wild. Add this to your theological perspective. Add this to your political ideology. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Listen to this, verse 26 of 2 Timothy 2. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Listen, the biggest problem with the opposing political party or the opposing sexual identification party, whoever it is, their biggest problem is not who they identify as and what their political platform suggests. It's that they've been taken captive to do the devil's will. And God is telling believers, don't argue over these things because they got bigger problems. People got bigger problems than who they vote for in November. We got bigger problems than who wins the presidency in the fall. And I ain't talking about COVID. We got bigger problems than that. People got bigger problems. You see, this theological gospel has made us so focused on this that the real pandemic is not even the coronavirus. It's the either or pandemic. It's either this or that. You're either here or there. Ah, no, fam, I'm just a human being. I'm right here. We've forgotten that we're not even, this isn't even our home as we see it. The theological gospel doesn't make you think about heaven. So you want to hold everybody accountable here for everything they said and done. And now we look at the past and we scrutinize everything from the past according to how we see things in the present. And now we're so morally superior and you need to fix this and you need to do that and you need to do this and do that. And many of us who profess to be believers ain't going to care about none of that when we up there with him. Right. All we're going to do is like, Lord, my, I'm sorry, Lord. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? So blinded. We've forgotten that our enemy is the enemy. It's not your brother. The enemy is not white people. The enemy is not black people who are saying they struggle with oppression. The enemy is not immigrants coming into this country because they want a better life. The enemy is not the LGBT community. The enemy is the enemy. God tells us, remember the war you're really fighting. We may have inherited this 
theological gospel. We may have inherited God's judgment. That we can't change. We can't change that. But we can change how we act and how we steward this inheritance. What do we do? Well, like Josiah, he saw the way out. It was, I need to, we need to make a covenant to the Lord. We need to make a covenant to the Lord. So what is that covenant? It's next Sunday's message. The inheritance framework is the way out of all of this madness. But we need to make a covenant. Or we're going to find ourselves falling victim. And we're going to look back and realize, wow, I was really bitter at people because they just think differently than me. Or I'm angry because they look like something that affected my people long ago. Or I'm bitter because what happened to your people happened long ago, not to you. So what are you talking about? No, church. No. We're believers. We're called to a higher standard. And because America said it's founded on Christ, it's called to a higher standard than other nations. So you can't say, well, other nations had slavery and they still have slaves. What about them? At least we ended it. Ah, you don't get a pat on the back for stopping something you should have never done in the first place. It's because you use God as a weapon. None of those other countries profess to believe in Jesus. They didn't start their existence on the foundation of Christianity, of Judeo-Christian values, as our politicians like to call it. No. By saying you believe in Christ, you are held to a higher standard. We cannot now be offended when we're experiencing the consequences of not keeping that standard. The next two messages, we're going to talk about what does the covenant look like? What is the way out? Otherwise, we'll just keep fighting and complaining and being bitter and resentful and thinking that the enemy is the people who are just different than us. And no, the enemy is enjoying watching other believers think that other believers are the enemy. May it not be so. I would rather you be offended at something I said then God be offended at something you did. I'll take the smoke if it means it will keep us from falling victim to this theopolitical gospel. It's not biblical. It's real, but it's not biblical. Let's pray. Father, I hate teaching these messages taught more messages like this in the last month than I have in the last five years. This is, not this, this is not my platform, but it is what's happening in our culture. And as you've allowed me to be able to speak to believers in different parts of the country about these things and share these ideas and hear their pain and their struggles, and, and we all see it. I feel a responsibility to protect the flock. That's what your word says my role is. That doesn't, it doesn't always say how we do that, what we emphasize on to do that, 
but to just know we're supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do that. But I'm not saying there weren't many errors in what I communicated, but this is, this is why I think you're doing what you're doing, and you know this because I've talked to you consistently for years about this. And while I can't prove that I'm right, I, I will die believing it to be true because of what I feel like you've shown, said, what other people confirm, and what your word says you do and the kind of judgment you bring. Lord, help us to not think that it was a long time ago. No, you think it, it, it wasn't that it happened a long time ago. You think that it happened. Lord, I pray that you would help us and keep us from being theological and to be biblical. And in our next two messages, next two Sundays, that we start thinking about what does that covenant look like? What does it mean to be biblical? So that we can help others, as 2 Timothy 2 says. But you may grant repentance. Lord, this is a complicated time we live in, but it's not so complicated that we can't obey you. And there are times we need complicated messages to remember, stay balanced, stay biblical. There's no one who does good, not even one. You did good, and you've given us your spirit to help us do good. Lord, may we not fall victim to the surrounding culture. Help us to see with biblical lenses not political ones. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, just for the sake of those who were not here, when we opened up, um, we did uh, let everyone know that we will not, we will do Q&A, but you still have to text the questions you might have to uh, area code 240 8076. Uh, that was 240 So, uh, Pastor Kurt, we do have, right now we have one question, um, and that question is, um, it, it starts with a st uh, kind of a, a setting it up. So it says, uh, if there's judgment for Christians who allowed racism and slavery, what about the Christians who pushed for abolition and the fact that slavery was abolished did that not appease judgment? It's a good question. So when you look biblically, let's just talk straight Bible. When you look at like the book, so God promised that he was going to judge Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And there were godly people in those kingdoms. Uh, as a matter of fact, the book of Daniel is proof of that. So you get Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. They get taken into captivity with um, with all of those, all of, all of those in Judah who were taken in captivity. Like God didn't spare judgment from people because there was some good. There's never all evil and all bad. Although there a case could be made in the Bible that the Northern Kingdom, it said they had 20 kings and all of them were evil and all the people did evil. But in the Southern Kingdom, you had good kings like Hezekiah, you had Josiah, what we're talking about. So God doesn't spare judgment. Of, it's not like only the people who did wrong. 
everyone gets taken. And this is where you get, you know, theologically speaking, into kind of like the, the there's sort of the, called the exile, right? They got these prophets. All the prophets that we know of, they all had a particular time period. So some of them talked pre-exile, pre-exilic, before Israel or Judah were taken into captivity. Then you had those prophecies coming during the exile, while you're enslaved by this foreign nation because of sin. And then you had prophecies coming after the exile called post-exilic. And so there were prophets. Jeremiah was taken into custody in Babylon. So, so it's not so much that there wasn't good that happened, but God, when he, I think when God judges, he's judging. Though he's judging and it just so happens that because God is good and because God knows what's prepared for us, like Paul talked about, I consider our present suffering because they're not worth being compared. Some of the things that we experience, they just become ways that God trains us to be conformed to the image of Christ. But other people, but there is judgment. And I don't think that because there was some good, I think that, yeah, that's true. There was some good, but you're talking about a foundation that was, that was about slavery. Like slavery being abolished took a couple hundred years. That's just a long time for people who say they profess to believe in Jesus. So again, like I said, I cannot prove that there's no passage I can say this is because, but what I laid out I think is, is biblical and I think it's, it's, it's realistic. And when God judges, he doesn't always stop judging because there are some people that are godly. Sometimes they experience the judgment as well. And that's, and that's part of their challenge. I mean, you look at John the Baptist. Why is John the Baptist in prison? And he's struggling. He's struggling with being in prison. Like, so you know how to say good things happen to bad, bad things happen to good people? Well, a lot of suffering in the Bible is, is about believers suffering, not non-believers. Most of the stories of suffering in the Bible and God allowing it to happen are towards believers. And some of those are caught up in the judgment. So I don't think that the abolition of slavery, and that was good. Praise God for that. Like I've read a quotes of people who push back. Praise God that that happened. And that definitely assisted in it. But when you start reading in the history and drilling into the details, it wasn't, I don't think it was the church as much as we think. There were a lot of other factors that went into ending slavery. And then after that, almost 100 years of Jim Crow. There's a lot that goes into that, so. Um, so in light of your statement that when God is judging, he's judging, um, what advice do you give believers if they're, you know, in a nation where judgment is taking place? I think the same thing that Jeremiah and Isaiah and them said, stay faithful to God. It's the same thing that Daniel did. Daniel didn't get, Daniel wasn't like, oh man, I'm, why am I getting, why did I get taken by Babylon? Like, I ain't do nothing. Like, nah, he was, Daniel was like, look, I'm going to try to remain faithful. And he told him, he said, look, can we not give us 10 days? Let us eat our own diet that we think honors the Lord. And if we don't look right, then you will we'll eat what you want. And it's like the Lord preserved him. So it's the issue of judgment has nothing to do with obedience in terms of staying faithful to the Lord. I mean, how do you know you're not being judged for something when you suffer? Like, we just don't know. In any situation, you lose a job or you get the virus or someone you care about dies. Like, we still have to maintain faithfulness to the Lord despite that. And that's one of the things. I mean, you look at Hebrews 11. Read Hebrews 11 and look at the Hall of Faith. And there's a particular verse. It's like 32 or 33. And it says something like, they were beaten. They were sawn in two. They were, it's, they were covered in ashes and sackcloth and ashes. And and they said, but they accepted it because they knew that they had a, a home in a, in a better country. In other words, they accepted the reproach of the, we're talking about Moses. Moses accepted the reproach 
of Egypt rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. So it's not, it's there, our obedience doesn't change even if God is judging our nation. We still are faithful. We still are, we fight to be faithful. Just like, just like we were saying, just like there were faithful people who were abolitionists. Imagine how they felt. Imagine how they felt being in that culture and thinking, how are you guys slave traders? I mean, imagine they're crying out their hearts and challenging people and nothing happening. Like imagine, so again, it's just, it's about maintaining specific obedience to the Lord and trying to affect the cultural consciousness of your time. Is there any special type role do you, that you think we should believe or should play in times like these? I don't, I don't, I can't think of like as a, I think, so it's not different than what I just said to be faithful. Mm -hmm. I think, so in this generation, in our generation, the, I said this maybe two weeks ago, the mission of the gospel, I think, has been lost because the morality in many ways has been lost. And so I, I think the special role of the church is to, so when it talks about the name of God is blaspheme, I, I believe that that can apply to what we've inherited. The name of God is blaspheme. The church has lost its soul. There are people who say they're Christians, and you'd be like, you, you can't tell by none of their actions or nothing. And they will proclaim it, and we're supposed to pretend like people are believers, and they just not. And that's what we've inherited, just straight up and down or whatever you say. Is, and it's like I think our responsibility is to be faithful first and foremost, to be missional, and to try to help restore the name of God that has been blasphemed among the Gentiles. To be, and we're going to talk about this the next two weeks with the covenant that we're making and metaphorically with, with using the Josiah framework, the covenant. We're going to look at that closely the next two Sundays and, and see what does that look like for us. But I think that I think a lot of it is not I don't think God is expecting us to do anything extraordinary. I think he's expecting us to just be faithful. And if we were just faithful to what God said, like, like, think about this. Like, we do a lot of conferences. There's all these conferences on this and that and these theologians and this and this John Calvin and this and that, Isaac Newton and whatever, the cross and all these. If we just said, you know what, what if the church, and I mean by the church, the conference sort of church, the people who, like these organizations like Gospel Coalition and like uh, Grace to You and all these organizations, uh, 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 crew and interval, all these Christians who put on these big, these big conferences. What if, what if we just said for the next three years, we're going to only conferences we're going to do is Christians are going to gather together and we're going to cry out to the Lord. We're going to inquire, we're going to grieve, we're going to inquire of the Lord, and then we're going to figure out how do we, how do we love others in the midst of this inheritance. Like, you know why people wouldn't go to that? Because it's not exciting. They wouldn't go to that because it's not the same thing. It's like, oh, I want to hear this dude talk about it's like, oh, I want to hear him talk about the impassibility of Christ. Well, you know, what does that mean in eternity? Like, like we, we, got, we got real problems right now. And it's like, but we, so I'm thinking if we, if the people who run these conferences thought, you know what, we need to just say, forget all the other stuff and let's just get back to, do, you know what, I, I, two years. Give me two years of nothing but how do you love your neighbor as yourself conferences. We would be transformed. We'd be transformed. Look, Jesus said, Jesus said this, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is what we're going to talk about the next two weeks. The question is, how do I want people to treat me? And that's a question that most believers don't ask. 
We get offended when people don't treat us a certain way. But we don't ask the question, okay, how do I want to be treated? And how do I, we evaluate how people treat us. We don't evaluate how we treat people. So I don't think God is asking for anything supernatural, but just like, man, if you obeyed the word. Amen. You, ever, you ever watched a movie on the Bible and it's like, dang, if they just stick to the story, this would be a better movie. Yeah. Like, why did you change the movie up and make it all weird? If you'd have just kept the story, the Bible is wild enough as it is. You could have just kept the narrative, added a little bit to fill in the gaps and we would be straight. You know, so it's just like that. I don't think God is looking for us to be like, oh, what do we do now? What do we do? It's like, man, be faithful. Do you still pray? Increase that. Do you still read? Increase that. Do you lack courage to tell people that you still believe and, and tell them why they should believe? Then pray against that. Pray that the Lord gives you courage to be bold. Believers been scared all the time. Believers, we've been scared our whole lives to preach the gospel. Not every believer, but it's, it's a scary thing. God isn't asking for anything major. He's just like, man, just be faithful. Be faithful in little, we'll be faithful in a lot. So. Well, this next question, I think, is kind of pivots off of that without knowing that you were going to speak in the way you have been. Uh, this person says, my small group has, uh, was recently talking about Philippians 3 and how Paul said he doesn't mind teaching us the same things over and over because we need it. One question we had uh, that I wanted to ask is, what are the things uh, that our pastors have, that you feel as our pastors, you need to teach us over and over? Uh, you've been preaching about judgment and racial reconciliation, uh, but what are the aspects you feel we as Christians are having the hardest time getting that you find yourself teaching over and over? So big picture, I would say trusting the Lord. And I'm not talking about conceptually. I'm talking about functionally. So like trusting the Lord and prioritizing persevering to the end because you trust the Lord. Those are the things that happen all the time. We are, we are easily... And now I think we have to add, like, see, here's the problem, right? Our church, I'm not talking about everyone in this room, because everyone in this room is not a member of our church. Solid Rock, though, our church is, by God's grace, a wonderful church. And I'm not saying that because I have to. I'm saying it because you look at the diversity in our church. Obviously, this doesn't reflect the reality, but if we were having church, you could walk in and be like, wow, there's white, black, Hispanic, Asian, old, young, Whatever, there's people here, there's single, married, interracially married, all types of stuff is just happening at Solid Rock. One of the challenges I face is a lot of the stuff I see in the culture, I just don't see in our church. I just don't see it. So I usually try to stick to what the, just go through books and stuff like that until things start affecting our church. Until I start seeing posts on Facebook where people offended and upset and other people who I know they know love them are like, I'm sorry, what do I love you? When I start seeing that type of stuff and I realize like, wow, this is affecting our church, then I will pause and, and preach until I feel like, okay, we're getting it. There's this model that I have, me and Mike say sometimes, you got to say it five times for people to hear it once. This is what you got to realize. A, a Sunday message, right, a message like this is competing with 167 other hours of your week where you're inundated with work, sleep, managing family, your own fears and anxieties. Uh, you might give another two hours to D-group in a week. So let's just say, just in terms of fellowship and stuff, besides your immediate family, you're talking about three to four hours a week that you give to that, when there's 168 hours. A sermon like this 
You're going to forget about this. You might not even like what I said, and that's up to you. That's fine. You can pray the Lord to change my mind. But, but a sermon like this is not going to have the debt that it can have when you have all these other things competing. Because once you're done with this and you log out for this today, you'll move on, you'll do your stuff, then you'll jump back on Facebook and you'll see people arguing over this and you'll be swept right back into that. So a sermon can't compete with that. So the, the Bible is talking about, man, we have that communion with the Lord. We, we're reading and we're praying and we're doing things and we're prioritizing eternal things. And that's just stuff that we just don't do. And we've said this over the years. We just, we don't prioritize these things, you know? And I, I mean, it is what it is. I'm not saying everyone has to come to a prayer service or everyone has to be on the prayer call. But my gosh, like our country is in shambles. I bet you most of the people give more credit and pay attention to the issues politically than they do calling in. And there's people I've never heard on that prayer call on Friday morning. I'm not shaming you. I'm just saying these are that prayer call should have 70, 80, 100 people on that thing every Friday. I'm saying this should be I ain't, I'm not self-righteous. I'm just saying, where is that at? If we have a worship service, we'll have 25, 30 people here. And sometimes I get it. I don't always go to those either. I invest a lot in ministry. And sometimes on those weekends, it's a priority that my family has me that my boys are around their dad because they give up their dad a lot throughout the week. And even when I'm home, sometimes I'm working and doing stuff. So there are times, yeah, we got to prioritize, no question. But I think as a whole, I think we've just, we are, we are amazing socially in terms of like accepting our culture and the different people. We're amazing, amazing. I'd give us an A. I'd give us a C if I was talking about spiritual fervency. I'd give us a C mm-hmm. in spiritual fervency. Mm-hmm. We're complacent. Mm-hmm. We're sleek off the land. Mm-hmm. And I think when things like this happen, you see it come out. Mm-hmm. You see it come out. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. COVID is a scary thing. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. It's a scary thing. It's been unpredictable. There's a lot of stuff and we're hearing all these messages. But at the end of the day, believer, like the Lord has you. Like, I'm, it's not my desire to die, catch COVID, and not be around and see my kid, none of that. But if that happens, I'm with the Lord. Mm-hmm. I am not going to be sitting around like, Dad, Lord, I kind of wanted to see my kids graduate and get married. I want to see. I'm going to be there. I get to see people like Barbara. Mm-hmm. I get to see people that I know and love. Mm-hmm. Why are we so pressed to be here? Mm-hmm. We're so pressed, so afraid. To die like do we have confidence that God truly loves us and forgives us we act like he's a wicked stepfather we're afraid to meet him and see him like why I can't answer that for you but I think it's a real thing and it's not just our churches believers everywhere I talk to pastors who I'm trying to encourage there's a lot of good things about our church we don't get a lot of corrective messages because this is the Lord's doing a lot of amazing work here but that doesn't mean can nothing be said it doesn't mean there's no improvements that can be made. Y'all talk about we can improve administratively, but we can improve spiritually too. So anyway, I ain't trying to preach another sermon. Y'all already mad at me. So It's too late, brother. It's too late. Man. It's too late. People are already mad. Let me go ahead. I got dead God. I need to make some more people mad tonight at six. Um, this next question is, uh, what is um, a good book of the Bible from the prophets or the Old Testament that would be good to read as to start thinking about these times? Well, that's a good question. I like questions like that. So to start thinking about these times, so I think, so let me start with the easiest ones. 
2 Timothy. Crucial. 2 Timothy. Revelation. Crucial. Uh, Galatians. Crucial. Crucial. Uh, let's go Old Testament. Psalms and Proverbs. Crucial. Psalms, you get the emotion. Proverbs, you get the wisdom. Let's go prophets. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Dude was proclaiming. Let's look at, you know what? You know what would be actually really good? You know what? Here's what you do. Here's what you want to do. Read 1st, 2nd Kings, and then read 1st, 2nd Chronicles. They kind of, these stories kind of mirror each other, but you get a lot of Israel's history, and you see like, man, how were they? What did they do? What did they do wrong? How did, how did this happen? How did God work in these, in that time span? Stuff like that would just help you just process like, okay, wow, this is crazy. A book like Hebrews, like Hebrews really, <laughs> Hebrews isn't just about like, oh, Jesus is better than everything. That's true. If Jesus is better than Mechizeldek, he's better than the, 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 uh, the Levitical priesthood, he's better than Moses. He, it, it does say all of that. But what, it, what Hebrews is also doing is explaining to us not just that Jesus is better, but that what his coming should do in the life of a believer. And if you don't want, if that's too much, if that's too all the place, do this. Here's one thing you can do. If that's too much, then here's what you do. Read Hebrews 11. If you, read Hebrews 11. And then when you get to the stories of people that it names, just go in the Bible and read their stories. That's the real question. Why did God put Samson, Moses, Jephthah, and different people, Gideon, why did God put them in the hall of faith? That's what, you, that's what you do. You can forget everything else I said. Go to Hebrews 11. They're going to forget everything else I said anyway. Go to Hebrews 11 and read, read just a chapter, and then when you get to each story, go back because it'll take you to the Old Testament. Why is Gideon in the Hall of Faith? Why is Samson like God put them in there as examples? That's going to teach you about how God sees faith. Faith isn't flawless. Faith isn't flawless. Faith isn't flawless. Some people was flawed, flawed. But faith moves in a direction, though. Faith still does something. It demonstrates. Real faith will demonstrate trust in the Lord. So I, I do that. I just read Hebrews 11 and then look at the stories in the Old Testament. Bam. That'll change you. It could change you. It might not. Um, I'm going to add a couple of Old Testament. Sure. Uh, Amos is a good book to Yeah. Um, you killed that to, last to year. Read. Um, Micah and Zephaniah are also mm -hmm. uh, good books. You know, I tell you what. If you, if you, if you want to learn this and you contact me or Mike, you can even ask uh, uh, Carl this, too. And I will say Dr. Lee, but we ain't, I don't even know if he's streaming, but we ain't seen Dr. Lee. I, I was hoping he walked in with Cleveland or something. Um, <laughs> good to see you, bro. Um, if you get to, because I think, here's the thing about the prophets. You got to understand what's happening. Right, right, right. So if you're going to read the prophets, don't just open it up. Either read a background introduction or ask us and we can send you resources did you, but if you don't understand the prophets, it just seems, because our Bible isn't put together like the Jewish Bible, like in sort of, a, it's just all, it's just Isaiah, Jeremiah, these major and minor prophets, but they're all at different time periods, same different things. Sometimes they're contemporaries. It's not like God had one dude speaking at one time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might be like, like Amos, Jonah, and, uh, and uh, who else? Habakkuk, you know, they might be all together. Then you might have Isaiah, Jeremiah. You know, they're just mm -hmm. in different, they, they might be contemporary speaking the same. But you got to, with the prophets, the reason why people struggle with them, because you don't know what's going on. So if you just read it and it's like, man, this is, I don't even know what's happening. 
you go on chapter 22 and you're like, man, you don't realize like, oh, okay, the Israel is in, like they're in custody. They are being enslaved right now as a judgment for their disobedience. And God is preaching to them all that. I'm going to restore you and bring you out to bed. All that stuff. People take all that stuff out of context. Oh, see, that's us. We the Israelites. It's like people say all this stuff and it's like, ah, no. So I think, but again, it's because we don't understand what's happening. We don't understand what's happening. So I think if you read the prophets, Daniel's probably one that's like easier to get until you get to the, the visions at the end. Then you're just like, man, you, it's like Revelation in the Old Testament. But I, I would, I would, if you read the prophets, you've got to know the background so you can get it. But if you can get it, here's a, here's a good book. Get a, buy a book called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Excellent. Excellent book. We'll give you every chapter. We'll give you a brief synopsis. We'll explain themes, all of it. It's every, just how to read the Bible book by book. Fantastic resource. That'll change your life if you let it. You got time for two more? I got time if they do. Okay, all right. So this um, <clears throat> person asks, if we are to love our neighbors, should we also love by pulling them out of the fire and warning them of what may seem to uh, seem a call for justice may be actually an entrapment into unity against God and with the devil into a one world religion? 100%. I would 100% agree with that. I think you may be describing some specific. I'm, I think that's what theological is. I think the theological gospel is very much a false faith and belief in things other than Jesus and, and a hope in those things. I think that's very much that. I think that's one of the things that we got to, that's, that's what you're talking about, Jude, snatch them out of the fire, right? It's Jude 22. I would agree with that 100%. The question becomes, though, the manner in which you do that. You see, because that could mean to you, I, I heard somebody say, hey, well, we got to preach the truth, man, and sometimes the truth hurts. But it's like, okay, I agree. Sometimes you got to preach that way. Listen, this is one thing. People, sometimes Christians act like they got to be in the pulpit. You're more intense in the pulpit because you're in the zone. You preaching, you've invested, you pray, and the Spirit works in you how he works in you. You can't be in the zone talking to somebody. You know, you be all, you know, you can't always do that. And so there's a time for, so I think it's the manner in which we do those things. And it's the disappointment when people don't listen. Look, people don't need to listen to you. They got, they, they, the, the faithfulness needs to be measured not by, oh, people change because I said it. Faithfulness is measured by, I said it so that, in hopes that they would change. And you, can't, you can't be responsible because if change, if, if change is connected to people changing when you say it, then Jesus failed. Because there were people that just got healed, ate good, got, got the leprosy gone and left. <laughs> it was like, good. Ten lepers on the side, Luke 17. Yeah. And he say, Jesus, son of David, crying out to him. He healed all of them. And the one that came back wasn't even Jewish. Right. And even he said, wasn't there ten? Right. It was like he looked at his man and said, man, wasn't there ten lepers? Right. And they said, yeah. He said, where are the other nine? Right. He said, oh, no, Lord. He said, go, your faith has made you well. Right. Like, it's just like, I, I, I forgot why I was even saying that, but it just sounded good. But <laughs> I just... You were talking about the manner in which we do it. Oh, yeah. We were talking about success. I just think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Success can't be measured by how people respond. It has to be measured by our faithfulness. That's the not whether, And that's just it. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, snatch them out of the fire. Tell them that they might be believing the ideology. But first, make sure you understand. One of the things I appreciate about, we were talking about this in, in, um, yesterday in biblical counseling class. One of the things I appreciate about uh, Mary Martha's story, right? 
So you got Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's trying to fix all this stuff. And then eventually she gets frustrated. So she says, Jesus, don't you care? Can you tell Mary to help me, please? Basically, I'm doing all the work. Now, Jesus could have said this. Martha, you're complaining. You're being selfish. You're being... He could have spoke to that, but you know what he said? He said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious about so many things. It means like, I speak to the real issue. Jesus understood, like, look, the outward manifestation of being angry and complaining and even judging that God doesn't care was something deeper going on. And see, we miss that when we're trying to tell people. We forget something deeper is going on sometimes in people. You can't just be like, man, why are you voting this way? Or why are you thinking that way? You just, you don't know what's going on. Why are you, why are you marching? Why are you, why are you upset at that? Man, this, there might be some hurt. Not everybody's skilled enough to do that, but that, I, I think that's part of what happens when we try to snatch people. We try to change people. Yeah. And I think part of being biblical is to realize I can't change people, but I can tell them that where change can occur. And that's a different, it's a different way to process it. So, yeah, we should do that. Long answer. Okay. And um, this last one from here. And then uh, Cleveland, did you have a question? So what Cleveland is saying is believers don't worry about judgment because essentially Christ judged, was judged on our behalf. So when judgment happens, God is challenging believers to do more to press in. Right. Right. So the Jesus movement from the 60s. Right. Yeah. Everybody started preaching Jesus. That right there is where we're not like the 60s. That right there. I would agree with that. I don't think, that's why I said we've inherited this. This isn't, this isn't judgment for sin that you've committed. But we've inherited a culture that's being judged. And we're still responsible to obey God in the midst of that. We're no different. If you, if you're, there's many of us that are the Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of the culture. It's just like, man, we're just trying to honor you, Lord. And it's crazy out here. And, but we still got to honor them. It doesn't, just because we, we're, it's not a judgment for our sin necessarily, but the culture we live in, I would agree, it requires us to be, so like I said, I don't think it has to be anything major. It's just like you said, in the 60s, people got saved because what? They was preaching Jesus. And think about the 60s. Let's, just, let's do a quick history lesson. You think about the 60s, you got significant racial unrest, right? So you got Martin Luther King's and Malcolm X's, right? You got the pill comes out causes, or at least it's connected to the sexual revolution. Now people are having way more sex without the fear of getting pregnant because of the pill. You got that. Then you got, so you got the, all the racial unrest. You got, you got the pill. You got sexual revolution. Then you got the Vietnam War. And you got people fighting over the war and all of that. Then you got the fear of communism. Right? You got all this stuff happening. What do you think Woodstock, you know what Woodstock was? Woodstock was a musical celebration that embodied the phrase, make love, not war, right? You get, it was just the reality. It was like people were like, man, let's make love, not war. Let's not go to war. People, it was a crazy, crazy decade. I think the 60s is similar. I think the 10th, 
2010 to 2020 is very similar. A lot, of, a lot of racial unrest. The only thing that's missing is a war. New sexual revolution. Um, drugs. I mean, the 60s was drugs. It was a drug decade. Man, 2010 to 2020. In the 60s, it was what? LSD. It was everything, right? Now it's Molly, Percocets. It's all the pills. It's all the prescription stuff. People, weed is legal now. They ain't even tripping off that. They don't even care. It's legal. You can go get a bag right now. We can sit out front and we not, but we could. But like, <clears throat> but you know, like it's, it's, it's the same thing in many ways. Different culture, different people, different language, different music, same spirit, minus a war. We're in war, but not one that's tearing the country apart. I, I would 100% agree. So what did they do then? Preach Jesus. What should we do now? Preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. Good. The last uh, question from the uh, app is, um, uh, do you think that there is a hidden agenda behind the Black Lives Matter movement that is an evil agenda? If so, will this cause more confusion in the long run for us? See, again, so again, I appreciate the question. I appreciate the question. But this is, this is I want to use that as an example. Since you're anonymous, you're the only one that knows I'm talking to you. This is what I mean, though. This is what I mean about theoretical. So yeah, we got to evaluate these things, right? Anything that's not Christ-centered has a satanic agenda. So it's not just Black Lives Matter. It's the Republican Party. It's this party. It's that party. It's, 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 it doesn't have Christ as its agenda. So the enemy is behind it. Every other religion, all of them are satanic agenda, evil agendas. I don't think the elevation of Black Lives Matter as an evil agenda showed us things about it. They say it on their website. You can look on their website and say, this is what we stand for, and that's going to run counter to things that we believe biblically. Right? Okay. But there's things that, but we always, as believers, we always have to find our way in a culture. So when Jesus, think about this for a second. Jesus, this boggles, this blows my mind. Jesus allowed himself to be a human being. This is God. He's God. He grows up in a culture where, um, where he sees all this evil happening. He's the only one that should be offended at all the evil. He knows that women are getting raped, that people are getting swindled out of money. He's growing up around all of that. You don't see Jesus outraged at a lot of this stuff. You don't see all. He knows every evil that's happening, a lot of them today. Maybe we have some, some you know, Technological differences, obviously, but there's a lot of things that are happening. Here, Jesus is, and what does Jesus do about that? What does he bring about those things? That's all a satanic agenda. I mean, he calls, what I read in John 12, right? He says, the ruler of this world. So why would we not think? But I think the problem is, when you say there's an evil agenda with Black Lives Matter, what it does is it makes you think they're the enemy. And so you don't want to pray for people that are evil. If the, and I think their agenda as a whole, sure, there's things I totally stand against, 100%, but that wouldn't be any different from what I would say on the right or the left or whatever. I mean, it's NFL, I love the NFL, but there's things that I'm, I don't support everything. I don't approve of everything they do. I love the NBA. I, I love March Madness and love it, but I don't support of everything they do. So again, it's not about like, who are they the evil ones? And if they're not, they're all evil. If they don't have Christ crucified as their aim, they're all evil. And what we need to do is, it's not just saying they're the evil agenda, 
it's like, yeah, we need to pray for these people and be willing to, yeah, we need to have conversations. But once we start thinking they're the enemy, we lose sight of who's the enemy, who the enemy really is. And then it becomes about this organization or this movement. And then your heart gets blackened because you think I need to protect people from them. And it's like, man, God might be telling you, man, you're not even protecting yourself from you. So we just have to be careful. I'm not saying we can't have a negative opinion about anybody or think everyone. But we but the fundamental thing about a believer, the fundamental thing we're going to talk about this the next two weeks is what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? What's the covenant? What does the covenant look like that we make with God? And there are times we do Ephesians 5.11. So to, to, I'll end on this. Ephesians 5.11 specifically says this. Um, do we expose the deeds of darkness? Right. So I'm, it's biblical. So people get some people like, man, you shouldn't be saying this from the pulpit because this and that. Well, I'm sorry. I don't agree. And because Ephesians 5.11 says expose the deeds of darkness. So to the best of my ability, when it's necessary for our church, I'm going to expose the deeds of darkness. That's, that's Ephesians 5.11. But the deeds of darkness aren't just Black Lives Matter, though. And if that's what you think, then I, if that, and again, I don't know what your question is. You might just be asked, but I, I tend to think that that's more of a political, theological perspective question. It's like, well, there's a lot of evil. A lot of evil on all political accounts, all movements. They're all, I mean, I, I've said this before, Black Lives Matter, they want us, we're seeing a, a, a wonderful display of faith in humanity, but not humanity's faith in Christ. This isn't helping people love the Lord. This isn't helping people love the Lord, but neither do rallies on the conservative side. I don't go, I don't watch no rallies on them and be like, yeah, I want to love people. I don't think like that. I think like, man, these folks are wild. Or I'll think the people they talk about, you know, you agree, whatever, whatever your political bent is, whatever that is. So, yeah, sure, we want to tell people, man, you got to be careful with, with, with any organization that doesn't help you grow in your love and admiration for the Lord and for the people who the Lord has called you to be around, culturally speaking. If that loses, then it doesn't matter how evil they are, because we're the more evil because we know the truth. A lot of those people don't know the truth. The devil has taken them captive to do his will. They don't know what you and I know. So if we're thinking, oh, he's evil, we need to tell people, man, the problem might be us. And Jesus, we do warn, but I think we got to be careful how we process what we want. Our last thing I'll say about this, and this is more to people in the room, and this is no disrespect to anybody, but you're not obligated to stay here for any length of time. So when you come to church on Sunday, engage in. If you want to get on your phones and talk and do other stuff, then just go out, go out there and do that. Do that. You can go out there and take care of that and do that. Like, you don't have to stay in here and disconnect from what we're doing. Just go outside. You can go outside. That's fine. We, we support that. We don't have any problem with that. But in the dome, we're not used to having people here. There's too few of you. We can see everybody. It's a distraction. If you're not, if, if, if what's, what's being said is of no interest, that's totally fine. Just go outside. Just go outside and talk amongst yourself. Use your phone and do all of that. You don't have to check out why you're in here. We have no, we've been, we've been preaching for months with nobody in the room. We don't have a problem if nobody's in the room. Like, we're used to that. So if it's a distraction in any way what's being said or communicated, then go out there, and so that way it's not a distraction for me and other people who see you not being engaged in what we're doing, all right? It's good to have people back. Glad you were here. There's a lot of work that we got to do. We're in trouble as a culture, but not because of Christ. The help is Jesus, and that's what we're here to talk about, and hopefully the next two Sundays we'll hammer that in. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for wearing your mask.
Thank you all for being here. If you come back again, it'd be great to see you. If you don't, it was good looking at you with your face mask on. Cleveland, I'm glad to see you, bro. I missed you, man. I didn't realize how much I missed you. I missed that gray head walking in. I, I, I missed hearing that. I missed hearing that doing worship. So it's good. Good to see you, Hannah. I haven't seen you in a couple weeks. Welcome back. Hannah Ingram. Good to, oh, look at that right there. Mike colored up. Look at that. Natalie Gregory Jr. Good to see you. So it's good to see everybody. All right, I'm done. You got one more? Uh, I do have an one more, but I have an, an announcement, so I'll just stick with the announcement. Um, and that is, um, for the sake, okay, so we're not the only people using the church today. We're not the only ones opening up. Uh, the Latino church that, that shares the church with us, they've been enthusiastic to open back up. Um, and, uh, and we're so glad that we're able to do that. So to, to help us get things ready for their return. Um, we're going to ask that, um, that we, we were going to ask this anyway, but, um, if we could take our hangout outside and there are people who've been asked to spot clean so that the building is ready for them to come in and be safe as well. Um, they come at three, but I'm not sure. We're not sure whether or not the people who need to spot clean have to leave right away or not. So, um, just to, um, make sure that they're able to do that. Um, we're asking if we can. Hit the hand sanitizer one more time. I don't know about you, but I know I've been mess. I've had to mess with my mask a few times, and I know when that happens in other places I've been in, they're like, "Hey, hit the hand sanitizer." So hit that, um, and please feel free to you know hang out and talk as much as you feel comfortable, you know, out there. But please be mindful that folks do have to clean and get ready for the next uh, the next service, which is not us, but it's uh, it's like light of the nation. So thank you guys for being here. Uh, thank you for those who came a little bit later to fill in some of these chairs a little bit. It's great to see you. Hopefully, we'll see you next week. Don't forget about D Group, Dear God, tonight. Um, don't forget about if you want to fast and pray with us for the things going on in our country that we're doing that on Wednesdays. Uh, God bless you, and God bless you, too, uh, those of you who are behind that camera. I uh, love you all, and have a great day and great week.